you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning. I am thrilled to be here this morning. I'm also very, very humbled. Uh, I was thinking about it just this morning. Uh, My family and I have been involved in the life of this church for about, uh, I think, just under six months. And and so I'm thrilled to be be able to be neck deep already and be able to serve and be a part of this community. Uh, I've gotten to meet many of you guys. Uh, Many of you have not met. uh, I've I've not gotten to meet, um, but I have the last month and a half or so, been stepping in as the interim youth pastor here on top of uh, all else I got going on in life. But uh, I am grateful to be here uh, speaking with you guys this morning. Um, But I would love it if you guys would be able to just join with me before we get into the Word, before we get into the message today. Just join me as we we go before God and that um, just allow Him to be able to invade this space in this time. Heavenly Father God, we just thank you. Lord, I thank you for pulling us together here this morning, for gathering us on this day. And Father, I ask that you just humble my heart, you humble each one of our hearts, God, that you just let us to be able to be open to the word that you have for us. That we might be receptive, that we might be honest with ourselves, we might be honest with you. And Lord, that I ask that you don't let a single word come out of my mouth that is not from you. That you remove any pride, any ego from my heart and from the heart of every one of us here today so that we might come face to face with you and honestly wrestle with what you have for us. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, my wife and I, we've been married for just um, about 11, a little over 11 years now. Uh, in that span of time, we have bought in two houses. Uh, and both of those houses, they were up in the Riverside County. We actually just sold the second one. We, we kept it on as, a, as an investment property for a season. We just sold it. Uh, but both times that we were in the house market, we were looking for houses. We were shopping for houses. We had two different mindsets. Right, so the first time we were looking around, we were looking for a house that was a fixer-upper home. Right, you guys familiar with that mindset? The fixer-upper, oh, sorry, not the fixer-upper, the turnkey, the turnkey home, right? So where you get, you buy the home, you get the key, and you go in on the first, first day, you open the door, and basically it is moving ready. You're ready to put your furniture in, you're ready to put your feet up, you're ready to, to make that home your own. You don't have to do much. You might put a slack of paint on the walls, you might do some gardening, whatever, but for the most part, that house is ready to go in. It is a turnkey home. And the first time we were shopping, the first time we were in the market, we were walking around, we were looking at these homes, and we were asking a very similar question as we walked into each door of these house, each one of these houses that we were looking at. We were asking, does this house fit my needs? Does it do all the things we wanted to do? Are we going to need to make massive investments to, to, to make it do what we want to do? Or is this home ready for us? We weren't interested in fixing things. We weren't interested in breaking down walls. We weren't interested in adding or minusing too many things. We just wanted to move into something that had a low commitment uh, in terms of getting it ready to live in. Then the second time we were on the market, this is a few years later, 
we, we sold the home, our last home, and we went and we bought a new home. In this one, we had a little bit of a different mindset. We had a mindset. We were looking for a fixer-upper home, a home that we could rip up carpet or rip up tile, that we could uh, demolish the backyard and rebuild it the way we dream. And so we would walk in. We, were, we would walk into homes with a totally different mindset. We were asking ourselves, uh, what could this house become? We would let ourselves dream and think, um, what can I see? What can I add here? What can I do here? What can I make this? How can I contribute to making this house into something, into a space that we know we will love? Right? How, do, how, do I, how do I reinvent this? And we ended up buying a home that had uh, the, the tiles. It had tile and carpet. Both were uh, horrendous, right? The, the tile was chipped and it was broken up. Uh, the carpet uh, reeked of, of pet urine. Like you walk in the house, you could just smell like pee everywhere. Uh, it had all these weird small walls throughout the, the bottom floor of the house that broke up the house in, in a weird space. And we actually were in the process of planting a church at the time and we were going to use our home to do it. And so we would walk into homes thinking, what walls could we demolish to make a big open worship center so we could start a church? We were dreaming, we were wondering, we were thinking, how can, I, how can I turn this into something? And when we would walk into those homes, when we walked into that second home we bought, we weren't asking, does this house fit all the needs that I have right now? We were asking a different question. What could this house become? What could I do with it? What could I, what could I, what could I do? How can I build it? Can we turn this into something that we would fall in love with? Now I look back and I think part of the reason why the first time we went out house shopping, why we were looking for that turnkey home, part of the reason why is, yeah, to some extent, we didn't have a lot of cash on hand. But I knew we had options. That wasn't the real reason why we weren't, we weren't looking for a fixer-upper house. I knew one of the real reasons that was there is that we didn't want to get our, our hands dirty. We weren't ready for that kind of a commitment. We were fairly young. We were scared of breaking open a wall and finding out what terrible things lurked in there and what kind of investment. I think I watched too many of those shows where they like flip houses and they have these ideas of like, oh, we'll just bust this wall out for $10,000 and then they do it and there's like asbestos or black mold or that's a retaining wall and it's like, oh, $50,000 later, right? That tiny project became this massive thing. I saw too many of those things. So I was afraid. I was afraid of getting into that commitment. I was afraid. I was scared to get my hands a little dirty. Right? And so that, that lurking fear of, of overcommitting ourselves to too much money, to too much work, to too much time, that wasn't there for us, right? We just wanted a turnkey investment. Now I ask, when you think of your church involvement, are you looking for a turnkey experience? Or are you looking for a fixer-upper are you looking to find some space? When you, when you walk in the doors of a church, our church, any church, are you wondering, does it have the right programs? Is it the right age group? Does it have the right kind of music, the sermon style? Is the pastor cool enough? Does he wear sandals? <laughs> does he wear dress shoes? Does it fit my needs? Or do you walk into a church and are you wondering and dreaming, what can this become? How can I roll up my sleeves? How can I serve? How can I invest? How can I build? How can I contribute in making this into the dream that God has for it? How can I be involved?
Well, today we're on, on, on part two of Life on Mission, the sermon series that uh, JP started. And we're looking at the book of Acts, and we're looking and we're, and we're wondering from, this, from the book of Acts a, a handful of verses, a handful of ideas here uh, of learning of how do we be more engaged with the mission of God? How can we be more engaged with the mission of God by learning of what the, the ancient church, the original church, of how it operated? And today we're going to be looking at just a single passage. We're going to be kind of laser focused on a single passage. Uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 2. And, and if you've been around church long enough, you would know that Acts 2 is oftentimes, uh, we use it to be an example of how the church ought to look today. We look at this ancient church and we see, man, that's the way church ought to look like. That's how it should be. And we use it as an example because it, to inspire us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to take our church to the next level. And, and so I think there's one verse in particular in there that we often pull from that I think sets the tone for what the heart of the ancient church was about. I think it sets the tone for what the heart of the ancient church is about and what it specifically means for a community to gather purposefully. We're going to be looking at Acts 2.42. But before we jump into that, I want to give us like a, like a 60, 90 second summary of what's kind of happening in, 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 that, in that story uh, of, of Acts 2.42 before we just re-jump into that verse. So here's a, a quick brief summary, right? So it, Acts 2.42 is talking about this community of people, this group of people this group of people who believed that Jesus was God, people who were committing themselves to follow Jesus, to live out this mission that he had, to live out the mission of God. And this was the early church. This was the earliest church. This was the first church, the first community of people, the, 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 the grassroots of this, this church that would, that would grow to be what it is today. And many of these followers, uh, were, many of these people, this community, were followers of Jesus when he was still alive. Many of them knew of Jesus' preaching. Many of them had watched Jesus serve and love people. Many of them watched him perform miracles, heard him preach. They watched Jesus live out a mission. And then many of them saw him crucified, pinned to a wooden beam. They saw him, many of them, saw Jesus resurrect from the dead. They saw him walking around in flesh and blood. Several hundred of them, at least is what, is what our guess is, about 200 or so, uh, watch him ascend to heaven. They heard him give the great commission, the great commission which JP talked on last week, the great commission that tells us that was the last command, the, the main command that Jesus gave to his church to go and make disciples of all nations. They watched him, they heard him, they watched him die, they heard this last command, command and they saw him ascend to heaven. And so after Jesus, Jesus' death, his resurrection, his great commission, ascension, this group of people, literally moments, they, they watch him go away. And moments later, right, they start gathering. They start preaching. They start teaching. They start living the way he taught them to live, loving the way he taught them to love, teaching the things that he taught. They started continuing this mission that Jesus started. The church was a community. The very beginning, the church was a community that was marked. It was identified. It was known 
by its mission. It was known by its mission. It was devoted to this mission, the mission of Jesus, to make followers of him. This was Jesus' group of followers. So Acts 2.42 is, is a summary idea of what this community was doing. So let's, let's go ahead and turn there and read it together. Acts 2.42. And it says, They, speaking about this community of people, devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so there's some key words there, right? They devoted themselves, right, to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And I read this earlier this week, and I found myself asking a question uh, that I hadn't thought about in a while. Why were they devoted? Why would, like, it just, you know, this word, this idea, devoted, this, this hyper amount of commitment... Why were they devoted? Where was that devotion coming from? And I'm not so much talking about why were they devoted to these particular four things and not four other things. Right? When I look at those four things, I think about the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Those things represent what Jesus did on a day-to-day -day life very well. It's what we do as a church. Right? What we are striving to do as a church. Right? I'm not wondering, I'm not asking why those four things specifically. I don't, I don't think that's a very necessary question. But instead, I like to ask this question, why were they devoted at all? Like, what was the goal? What was going on in their mind? What was their thought process? It's easy to kind of make ourselves distant from them because they lived 2,000 years ago and we know how the story goes. But if you stop for a moment, you just start asking that question, why did they decide to gather? Why did they decide to become devoted? Right? Uh, imagine if you were one of them. You were one of these people 2,000 years ago. You saw Jesus. You heard him. You might have been inspired by him. You watched him do some miracles. Then you see him get nailed to a cross. A brutal death. Complete brutal death. And you had these ideas of what Jesus was going to do. Because this is an important thought, right? The disciples had this idea. The early followers had this idea that Jesus was going to raise up an army and kick out the Roman Empire. And he, he dies. He is killed by the Romans on a cross. Right? And then he's back, mysteriously, miraculously. He gives this big commission to go make disciples, and then literally he floats away. I can't underestimate, underestimate how bizarre of a scene that would have been for them. And now you're standing there, and you're looking around, hundreds of other people, and you're thinking and you're wondering what's next. The guy who we were just following, who we just made sacrifices to, to follow and to learn from, just floated away. What next? And the way I see it is I think there's two paths. There's two paths that could have been taken. Right? So, so the first path is that you walk away too. And you're like, hey, you know what? Uh, that was it for me. And, and it, it, it might seem like a crazy idea because we know where this, the story of this church goes. But if you imagine if you were one of them and you had no idea what was going to happen next, it's not that crazy of an idea. You might have been inspired by this guy, but you just watched him get pinned to a cross and you watched him die in a brutal way. And then he floated away. Right? And that might have been the moment you're now thinking, all right, I'm out. That just crossed the line. This just got too weird. This just got too bizarre. I don't, know where, I don't know what. 
right? And you can imagine the kind of things you might be thinking. I've got a family to feed. I've got, I've got young kids at home. I have no idea. I, I'm not willing to commit to this. I'm not willing to risk this. I'm not willing to sacrifice all this. There's too much going on in my life. There's no way to start a new business, whatever. You can imagine the kind of stories that people will tell themselves. So option one is that you, you just walk away. I have no interest in, in following Jesus. I saw what happened to him. I'm not going that way. I'm not interested in that. The second option is that you actually do something about it. Right? You're looking around at all these other couple hundred people who all just heard this great commission. If you've heard the things that Jesus has been teaching and preaching, and you're now wondering, let's do something about this. He gave us a mission. Let's do something about this. You might even think about uh, the words of Jesus in John 14, 12. Well, I want to pull this up for a second. Now, these are some of the words that might have inspired the early church. He said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. That you would have been thinking, you watched Jesus ascend, you're like, this is it. Now, we as a community will go and do even greater things. The way Jesus inspired us. The way Jesus taught us. That you aren't, just, you aren't just inspired by Jesus. You're not just like, wow, Jesus is cool. He could do some cool miracles. But you are actually motivated. You start dreaming. That you, you aren't just in awe of what he did, but you are actually becoming ambitious to do what he can do through you and with you. That's this other group of people. That's this community. They're looking around at, at each other as Jesus ascends and they start thinking, what am I going to be devoted to? What am I going to be devoted to? Wondering, drinking, thinking, what could this become? What could this group of a couple hundred people become? What could we do together? What can we build together for Jesus and with Jesus? It was a community with a fixer-upper mindset. A mindset where they were willing to roll up their sleeves to make commitment, to make sacrifice. Nobody was thinking at that point in time, does this church have all the things that I need and want in a church? Does it have the right pastor? Is he cool enough? Does it have the right type of songs? Does it have good coffee? How about the seats? How many of you guys have judged a church by the comfort of their seats? Real talk, I have. No, this was a group of people that they were there, not because it fits their wants, but because they were dreamers. They were looking around and they were wondering, what can this become? They were on a mission and they wanted to live out that mission. They were devoted because they wanted to be a part of building Jesus' church. Right? And you think about those things. It says they were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And they were devoted to prayer. Right? They were devoted to teaching because they wanted to learn how. They wanted to learn and figure out how do we live this out? How do we do this? They were devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread because they knew they needed each other. They needed to do life together. 
They knew they needed each other's challenges, convictions, encouragement, support, in order to live out this mission. And they were devoted to prayer because, frankly, they knew they needed God. The mission was too big. They needed God. They needed his superpower to make this happen. Their dreams were bigger than their, than their, than their budget, their capacities. And they needed God, so they went in prayer. 2,000 years ago, this group of people were devoted to gather purposefully on a mission. On Jesus' mission, they wanted to build something together. They were not looking for a turnkey opportunity. They were looking for a fixer-upper. Something that would take hard work, commitment, ambition, sacrifice, and it might cost their life. But they were motivated by that mission. 2,000 years later, the church still exists. It's here. We still exist, and we exist for the same reasons. We don't gather to feel good about ourselves. We shouldn't. Hopefully, Sunday morning isn't a checklist that gives you that little bit of inspiration to get through the rest of the week. Right? Uh, we don't listen to sermons and teachings because we want more Snapple facts. You guys know what Snapple facts are? They're like in Snapple, like the, the drinks, the Snapples, you open it up on the inside, there's like these useless facts. And for people like me, they're infuriating because like three out of four times you're like, what? This is, this is like a stupid fact. <laughs> right? We don't listen to sermons to gain more useless information that we're not going to do anything with it. That's not the point. It's not why we sit and we listen to sermons. The church exists for a mission. We teach, we meet, we worship, we eat, we pray. We need each other to live out the mission of Jesus to make disciples. We are devoted to each other for a mission, for a reason. And I would actually say there are many challenges in today's church. And I think one of the things that's actually probably maybe one of the most pressing challenges, especially with some of the younger generations, my generation including, is that it is so easy. This is for the American church, specifically for the American church. It is so easy. We see it so often that the church community engagement is low. Generally speaking, throughout our, our, our country, I think church engagement is low. This is something, I, I mean, JP didn't allude to, to this specifically, but he alluded that one of the most important indicators of a healthy church right now is engagement. And part of the reason of that is because engagement, there's a lot of people going to churches, but engagement is relatively low for the people who are in churches. And I'm not just talking about uh, our church here. I'm just saying across the nation, people are less involved. They serve less, they give less, right? They're less involved in, in, in things in the life of the church. They're less involved in the things outside of the church, but for the church. And I think sometimes uh, people are less involved because they believe what they do matters less. Let me expand on that a little bit, right? I mean, there's this mindset that we might have. We think, I don't have a lot to offer, what can I offer? Or, or what little I do offer seems inconsequential. I've shared my testimony with three people and they didn't change their mind. So we think what we do, what we contribute is inconsequential. We just think, oh, one more volunteer and there's 20 of them. I'm inconsequential. 
I'm just one more voice praying. I'm just one more body helping carry chairs and setting up and tearing down. Right? I'm just one more. So they think what I do matters very little. It's inconsequential. It is very, very, very easy to talk ourselves into believing that what we do is inconsequential. And in academic ethics, some of these conversations and goes on in amongst professors and scholars and whatever and ethics and conversations about what is right and what is wrong. There's this old parable, this old story um, that, that is talked about that kind of shows why this, this way of thinking is problematic. This idea that what I do has such little impact, it doesn't really matter. But I mean, a good example of this is I, I was at Disneyland recently and I was standing in line to get what was like ridiculously expensive hot, hot fudge sundaes. And the guy next to me was like, oh my gosh, it's $15. He's freaking out. And I'm like, Disney, right? This is what they do to you. And he says, you know how I get back at them? I'm not even kidding you. I was like, whoa. He's like, you know how I get back to them? I go into the gift store and I grab as many stuffed animals as I can and then I beeline it out. And I looked in front of him and his daughter had like three stuffed animals she was just playing with. And I was like, oh, it's like $200 at Disney. Right? And he's thinking, and you know what he said next? He says, they won't miss it. Right? Like that little thing, it's inconsequential. Doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. So in academic ethics, they have this whole story, this parable, this idea, whatever you want to call it, that kind of shows why this way of thinking is a problem. Right? And it's about cowboy bean thieves. Why it's about cowboys and beans, I have no idea. I think it makes the story more interesting. But imagine the scenario, right? Back in the old Wild West, you got a cowboy and he's hungry. But he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't have food, he doesn't have money, he has no way of doing this. So he's, hey, he has to steal to get something to eat. And so he thinks, ah, I, I, but I don't want to steal so much that I, I'm, I'm taking too much from somebody. I don't want somebody else to go hungry because I'm stealing from them. Right? I want to just, I just need a little bit, just enough so that I'm okay, but I don't want to, I don't want to feel guilty about what I'm doing to them. I don't want to have any serious consequences on them. So he comes up with this crazy plan. He says, I'm going to go into the town where there's a hundred villagers, and I'm just going to ride around, and I'm just going to steal one bean from every single house. One bean's inconsequential, right? They're not going to miss one bean. And in the end, I'm going to have a hundred beans. I'll have a full dish. So he goes, does it. He's shooting his gun, grabbing beans, stealing beans. In the end, everyone's one bean less. Seems inconsequential. And now he's got a full dish and he's happy. And then another hungry cowboy comes along and thinks, hmm, has the same idea. And then another, and another, and another. And soon, a hundred hungry cowboys come along. And they all think, well, my actions are inconsequential. It doesn't hurt anybody. And they all just steal one bean. What happens after a hundred hungry cowboys steal one bean? The villagers won't have any beans any left. Their dishes are now empty. And now the hundred cowboys all have their hundred beans. Right? And it's this idea that these hungry cowboys thought their actions were inconsequential. It doesn't matter. They're not going to miss a single bean, right? But all those individual beans added up and it has huge impact. The analogy shows us that even when we think something is inconsequential, 
Even when we think our sin or our crime is inconsequential, it still has impact. Right? And because we don't see it, we don't think about it, we don't understand it, we can't quantify it in the way that makes sense for us, we think it doesn't matter. But it still has impact. The analogy works both ways. It works with these bad behaviors like stealing a bean or stealing a, a, a stuffed animal from Disneyland. And it also works with good behaviors, things that have positive impact. And so it brings forth the saying, many hands make light work. Right? We might think that our gifts or our services are small and they are inconsequential, but collectively they make a huge impact. And the analogy, they make a huge, huge impact, right? You might be thinking, I am no builder. I am no fixer-upper. I don't have the stamina or the, the ambition to break down a wall and hope there's no asbestos or black mold or whatever. Right? And in church ideas, it would be like this. I'm no preacher. I'm no prayer warrior. I'm no sound tech. I'm not good with kids. I'm, I don't have any money and I don't got any time. I just got one bean. I just got one bean. It's not much. It's inconsequential. And the fact is, you have absolutely no idea what God can do with a single bean. You have no idea. God has a history. He has a, has a pattern in Scripture of taking people who believe their acts are inconsequential and using them to do big things. Part of the reason I love Scripture is that you can look at how God has behaved in the past, right? He used Moses who said he couldn't, who couldn't speak and he used him to persuade a superpower. He used David who couldn't fit in armor to defeat a giant and later lead armies to the United Nations. He used Sarah, who couldn't have kids, to become the mother of all of God's people. He used Peter, who was illiterate, who couldn't read or write, to lead and start God's church. With God, willingness and faith can go a long way. Willingness and faith might be that one being you have. And it can go a long way. Alone, one being might seem inconsequential, but collectively we got a full dish. When we come together, devoted with that fixer-upper mindset, dreaming, what can we do together? Dreaming, what can we do? What can we build? Pulling together our beans. We can do and we will do what Jesus promised that we would do even greater things. We don't just need to be inspired by Jesus. We need to be motivated by him. You might be thinking, what's the point in sharing my testimony with someone? I've done it a handful of times. I've never seen anyone convert. I've never seen anyone change. What's the point? You know, and then I would say, maybe your testimony alone might not make the impact. But here's an idea. What if you were the hundredth person to share your testimony to that person? Imagine the impact if every member of, of, of Jesus' church was sharing their love and passion for Jesus. Imagine the impact. You might be the hundredth person. You might even be the first of a hundred more. Imagine the impact. Imagine if you were the hundredth person to share Show care 
and a willingness to listen to a student who is struggling with self-worth. Imagine if you were the hundredth person to invite someone to church. We sometimes think that our one being has no impact, but collectively we got ourselves a full dish. In my graduate studies, I, I, I spent a semester uh, studying someone named uh, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher Immanuel Kant, and I actually was, was on his uh, view of ethics. All right, and I'm getting lots into academic conversations about ethics today. Um, I've read a lot of stuff in my life, but his book on ethics was by far the most boring thing I've ever read in my life. I've read a lot, I've probably read a lot of boring things as well. But he had this one idea that really stuck out to me. It's always stuck out to me. It's a crazy name, just to give you an idea of how boring it is. He called it the principle of categorical imperatives. If you think you need a cup of coffee to just understand that sentence, then you know what I'm going through, what I went through when I went, when I went through this book on, uh, on ethics. But many people have nicknamed it the principle of universal laws. And the idea is very simple, right? If something is good or, or something is good or bad, right? We can figure out what something is, whether it's good or bad, if we can say, can this become a universal law? Could everyone do this? What would happen to the world if everyone did this behavior? And you're trying to figure out, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Here's an analogy. You take your dog on a walk. You go to the park. And your dog goes number two in the park. And you think, should I grab a plastic bag and pick it up with my hands? It's one dog. It's inconsequential, right? What does it really matter? The lawnmower is going to come in a few minutes and shred it up anyways. What if every single person had the same thought? I'm going to take my dog to the park and let it poop. And everyone left it. What would happen to our parks? They would be disgusting. Right? I mean, it, it's a simple idea. And you can just imagine how we can use this in endless ways. What if everyone lied on their taxes? What if everyone stole from big stores? What if everyone stole from Disney? What if everyone ran a red light? On and on and on, right? So here's my question. Here's my question for you. If everyone was as, as engaged in building the church as you, what would God's church look like today? What would God's church look like today? Would it be better? Would it be more engaged? Or would it be worse? Would it be smaller? Would it have less impact if everyone had the same willingness to share, to, to serve, to talk about Jesus, to invest in others, to give, to pray? Would the global and the local church be more empowered? Would it be more engaged? Would it be marked by generosity, marked by humble prayer? Or would it be less? What would the state of the church look like if everyone had the same commitment in their heart, had that same mindset as you in terms of, of, of engagement in the church? What we can learn from the history of the early church is that God can powerfully use a community of people who are devoted in gathering together and being committed to a mission. If you look at the history of the church, that's something we see and we learn. God can use this group of people who are motivated, inspired to live out, to faithfully live out the mission that Jesus has put in front of them. People who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. People who aren't afraid to make some sacrifices. 
people who aren't afraid to step out of their comfort zone in order to build God's fixer-upper church together. God can use that faithfulness, that single being of faithfulness and willingness. Together we got a huge dish. So what mindset do you have? When you think of the church, what kind of a mindset do you have? And I'm being very clear, I'm saying mindset for a reason, right? Because there are seasons in our life where maybe you cannot do everything that you want to do. Just talking about my wife with the, about this recently. I just have three kids. One of them's really young. And she's like, man, I, I'm, I'm not able to be as intentional and people I want to be. It's like, yeah, there's seasons. But the mindset, what's your heart, what's your drive? Is your heart, are you a dreamer in your, in your heart? Do you want to do more? Do you want to do more for, for God's church? Do you have a turnkey mindset? I just want to go to church. I don't really want to do anything. I just want to sit there. And enjoy it, go home, feel good about it. Or do you have a fixer upper mindset? Do you want to be the exception? Or do you want to be the example? Will you look at one being, your one being, and throw it out because it's inconsequential? Or are you willing to put your being in with this community, with God's community, to roll up your sleeves? And join in on the mission of Jesus to build his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, I thank you. And Lord, I ask that you do what only you can do. That you inspire us, that you challenge us, that you convict us. God, that, that the, the words here wouldn't put guilt on us, God, but that it would, it would inspire us to change. It would challenge us to be people who are more involved in your church, to people who are more committed to you. God, would you use this word, would you use this time to change us, God? Thank you, Jesus, Lord, for your love for us as a community, for us as individuals. Thank you for commitment to us, God, that you continue to build us up and you continue to inspire us and you continue to challenge us. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your generosity. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first... If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.